Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through LGBT storytelling. Hi, Mike. Hi, Caleb. I'm really excited to see what you have today. In keeping with today's theme of coming out, um, with both my photos and stories for you today taking place in 1975 when I was just about to turn or had just turned 23, uh, I was in grad school at Tufts University in their international relations program. It was called the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at the time. And, you know, I had never had sex with anybody. And I was attracted only to boys, no matter how much I tried to, uh, to turn that around. And yet I didn't even know if that would work for me. And I'd had one or two, I guess, opportunities which I had turned down or ignored because they would have been with people that I wasn't particularly attracted to and then they would have known the next day what we had done and I couldn't afford that because I would have just been experimenting. So I picked up the Boston Phoenix Underground Magazine while I was in grad school and they had a, a pink section of you know, the kind of wanted personal ads and sex toys and whatever called the Boston After Dark. And I found an ad in there from someone basically saying 20-year-old 21-year-old, med student, handsome, needs money, more or less willing to do anything. We started a correspondence, and back in those days, for younger, you know, younger audience members who will not understand that things were not instantaneous the way they are today with Grindr, uh, you know, I responded to that ad. I wrote a longhand letter. I stuck it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, mailed it to a P.O. box where somebody a week later went and retrieved it, along with probably 20 or 50 or 100 other responses like mine, read through them, decided to respond to mine with his own letter in an envelope with a stamp, which took another few days to get to my address. And all this during my school year while I'm taking courses and exams and getting ready to graduate in May, it's probably around March. And we finally agreed to meet in Harvard Square uh, at an old fashioned kind of uh, business, business bar and you know, mahogany and what have you. Um, drove my little graduation gift from college, 1974 Celica, uh, down to Harvard Square, parked, went in, totally, you know, nervous as all hell. I don't know who this person is. I don't know if I'm going to find him attractive. I don't know if I want to do this. But on the other hand, i got to find out. So I met him. I'm sure if I look back at him in the, in the frame of reference of that time, he was handsome. He had longish hair, like we all did back then, you know, probably over the years. Decent build, handsome face. And we talked about going ahead with it and got in my car and drove back to campus, came out of the parking lot into the dorm where I lived. I had a suite mate gone for the weekend, uh, so the place was my own. And I was so nervous that we had to smoke grass in order to relieve my anxiety. And finally, we went into my little, you know, probably 8 by 10 or 8 by 12 single room with a single mattress, and we jumped in bed. But there was no meaning in it for me. I didn't know this person. There was no chemistry as it was. So when it was all said and done, uh, I didn't need to, but I offered to drive home, home, which ended up being 40 minutes uh, outside of town, out of Boston, and back at you know 11 at night on a Sunday. And uh, I remember thinking, well, that was interesting. Uh, you know, I didn't have this wow moment, but what if it had been any of those people that I had fallen in love with? And we had done that. How would it have felt then? And that's when I said, yeah, I, I, I'm probably gay. 
So you had a physical kind of connection with the sky, but because there wasn't the emotional element there, uh, did that leave you confused about where you felt? Or it seemed to at least have pushed you a little more in the direction of understanding you were gay. Well, it left more questions than answers. If I hadn't been responsive, or if I had gone, wow, this is it, then it maybe would have been one case or the other. But I was left in the middle thinking, well, you know, I can imagine what that might be, but it's not there for me now. Now your story? Yeah, so my photo for you, Mike, is um, it is a picture of my dorm uh, door in college my first year, and it is a um, penis that was drawn on my door. And essentially, like, I mean, usually daily this would happen. Um, uh, People would draw just, like, guys, you know, having sex with other guys or whatever. And I think it was a way of just trying to either tease me or embarrass me. Um, But it was kind of indicative of uh, how I felt being there. Um, Going into college, I basically had no choice uh, by my parents to go to... um, uh, the local state school there. Uh, just a very, you know, very Southern school. Um, I think they mainly teach, like, you know, engineering and agriculture. So, you know, you're getting, and business, so you're getting a lot of, like, kind of masculine, you know, guys there, straight guys. Um, and so I just didn't fit in. And there was no one, there were gays, but uh, very few. It's in the Deep South. It's a masculine, sports-oriented culture. Yes. How could it not have a, at least a fairly dominant ethos of homophobia. And I was looking for people like me because I wanted to study film. They they offered a few film courses, but not any you know kind of substantial program. Um, and I wanted to go to an art school. And so, you know, so my senior year in high school, I made a feature length documentary um, uh, going to uh, senior living facilities and interviewing folks about their lives and advice that they have for younger people. And so after that, I had finished it right as I was going into college, my first year, and uh, a local branch of the TED Talks organization reached out and invited me to give a TED Talk that spring. And it was like, I mean, months of preparing a huge, like, huge amount of work. It was like a, it was like a class in itself. Do you know how, impre- how impressive that is? <laughs> to have the TED Talks reach out to you, an 18-year-old student, and say, would you come? and speak about your documentary. I know people that have been working forever to get their stuff into a TED Talk and can't. Sure. (laughs) Well, so essentially, um, leading up to that, you know, again, from like August through March, it was that long of a process getting ready for it. Um, And then the day before my talk, um, I stopped at a nail salon, and I had never been to a nail salon before. Um, but I thought, you know, I want to look my best. I want to, you know, do this all the way. So I stopped there and essentially was, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I don't want to say molested, but it, it kind of, I mean, I, I, th- this guy did my nails and then asked me if I wanted uh, my eyebrows done. And I said, yes, we went to the back room where that's done. And he closed and locked the door, held me down on this table um, and held me by my crotch and was like, are you gay? Are you gay? Um, clearly, I mean, who knows what his story was, but probably was repressed and, and dealing with that. Um, but at the time, you know, I wasn't, at the time I was afraid and I thought, you know, I didn't know if I was about to be raped or what was going to happen. And so... Did you manage to elude him? Uh, I just, yeah, I pushed him away and uh, left immediately. 
But um, I called the police right after, and essentially it was a joke to them. I mean, I have to say, like they were, they were like, you know, um, not taking it seriously at all. And they, in fact, they said, you know, why are you wasting our time with this? Um, if you want to file a report, come to the station. So I went to the station, filed a report. Um, then the next day, had my talk. So I did that. Well, um, let me let me just ask you, what was your state of mind entering your talk after something like this happened? Not not great, <laughs> not great. And you know, and this was. It was already building up to this point of, you know, in fact, the talk that I gave um, was very much about like being yourself, and and it wasn't, and it wasn't like overtly gay, um, but a lot of what I had learned from the people I talked to um, was uh, some regret around not not um, being able, able to pursue things they wanted to do when they were younger, not being able to be themselves, and that was something I was struggling with, and so that's what I talked about. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was staying at my family's place prior to this, and they went through my backpack and found a card from uh, one of the gay clubs. And I had just started going to gay clubs. It was one of my first times. And so um, I didn't know that going into it. They had already found that, so they were already not happy. And then I, um, at the talk that day, struggled, um, but gave the talk, and then got a call from the police and they asked me a few questions um, and then at the end kind of made a joke that, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what they said, but something to the effect of they didn't believe me. And so at that point, I thought, you know, this guy could be, who knows, this guy could be a predator. I mean, at this point, I was like, I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly. I need to do something. So the police were basically treating you like, oh, you're just two, two, two queens having a bitch fight? Ex exactly, exactly. And so I told my parents who were at the conference to see me speak, and this was after my talk was over, uh, that I needed to talk to them. Um, my mom had struggled with cancer my whole life, so she she had a lot of emotional baggage, and I knew she would not react well to this. So I, I pulled my dad aside, but of course, I mean, he didn't like me very much either, so he just went straight to my mom to make this a thing. And their first reaction was like, you know, why were you in a nail salon and, and what's wrong with you? Are you, you know, you're, you're disturbed. We're going to send you somewhere. We're going to, you know, and so they were threatening actually to send me to gay conversion and all this, like in that moment. And then in front of, rather than supporting you. Right. And then in front of 400 people who were here to see the talk, um, they started screaming at me that I was an ugly faggot, a dirty queer, you know, all of this, all of the stuff. And so they left. Well, let's, let's pull back for just yeah. a second. That's pretty traumatic. It is. So let's not let's not avoid the feelings, yeah. as painful as it may be. I'm, what was it like for you at that moment, in front of four hundred people being tossed to the to, to the winds by the people that are supposed to be taking care of you? I mean, I was like, I, I even to this day. I mean, that that was like a defining moment in my life, and I I knew at the time. You know, and the funny thing is, like, the first thing I told my mom because, like. While she, she's kind of shouting all of this at me, I told her, I said, you know, I, I, if anything, you are, are why I am the way that I am, because I so have respected you. And, you know, I feel like we, because I felt, you know, she and I would go out shopping. She and I would go out, you know, and we would talk about, you know, interior design stuff. We would, you know, I would, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but they wanted you to inherit your father's traits, not hers. Right, right. So... I told her, I was like, I, I said something like, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm my mother's son, like I'm your son and this is, you know, I am who I am. And so at that point they left and then fortunately um, some of the staff from the high school where I, I had gone 
um, came to support me that day. And so I went to... Did they hear the thing between your parents? No. So, but I went to tell them about it. And for whatever reason, we were sitting in their car. So like me and two of my teachers from high school. And then my parents called and it was my dad. And he said that if I came home, he was going to kill me. I have a text from my mom the day after my TED talk. And it says, uh, you know what? This is causing me too much pain, both emotionally and physically. I trusted you never again. I do not and will not be able to trust you. I won't pay for one more cent for school or anything else. I love you. I always will. And so at that point, I um, I knew she was going to be away for a day. So I went home and I knew my dad wasn't there either. So I packed up all my stuff. I had a friend help me um, and took all my stuff out of their house. And um, so then I went back to college. Hold on just a second again. I, and I'm sorry to keep interrupting yeah. you. But I don't want to gl- glide over, and it's not if it's the right word, um, the emotions involved. What does it feel like at 18? Yeah. Yes, eighteen. To be essentially kicked out of your home and told, not only I won't support you anymore, I don't want, I don't want to see you again. I mean, it, it was a. I mean, I I woke up the next morning and it was like waking up in a dream, like waking up in an alternate reality. Everything was different, and in one, in in a certain way, there was a, there was always a piece of it that was like somewhat promising. I mean, like liberating almost because it, I knew. It was just building up and building up and building up. Um, and for it to finally be out in the open, it, it was both like liberating but also scary because I, you know, I, I had never made my own money before. I had never, I, I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't a surprise, but it was such a shock in a, like in a physical way that it was like, you know, waking up in a different world. So who did you turn to? Well, so that so that week, I, I turned to you know the, because I went to such a small high school, um, I was so close with the faculty. They really you know helped me power through a lot of this. Um, but then I called my dad um, one or two days after this happened, and he told me that he said that they found you know the card from the gay club um, that I you know that I probably uh, just you know fucked this guy and then we regretted it or whatever. Um, and then he said that if he said that you will never go to SCAD, which is the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is where I had always like dreamed of going in high school. Um, and he was like, you'll never go to that faggot school. You'll never go to that faggot school. So I was determined to go <laughs> and did. Um, but yeah, so after that, it was just like a whirlwind for five or six months, just trying to piece everything together, figure it out. Um, and so then I just, uh, I moved into a little, little like shitty like house with these two like stoner girls who were really fun, but I had never, it was so far out of like anything I had experienced that it was really hard to get acclimated to How that. did you afford rent? Um, well, amazingly. So like, um, I, so I had, I had like maybe a c- couple thousand dollars in my bank account. I immediately went and withdrew that. Um, and then I, I actually literally like went and drove around to local businesses and handed out flyers for my video production work. Um, and I was hired by a few places to do that. So um, I supported myself that summer doing video and have done that since. And then uh, then I applied to uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design, um, submitted my portfolio, got some uh, scholarships and you know loans for the rest of it. 
um, and went down to Savannah. Like within months? Yeah, so that, that next fall was my first quarter there. Wow. Yeah. And how long do you think it took you to adjust to the idea of being on your own entirely? Um, honestly, that whole summer, I mean, I, I, it much, I mean, I'm much longer than that, but like the entire summer I, I was, um, I, I, I had never been in that and maybe since then haven't been in that, in that kind of extreme, uh, upheaval. And so just over, uh, a year and a couple months after this whole coming out unfolded, um, I got a call from my mom that she uh, was pretty sure she wouldn't live past the summer, and she, uh, you know, she ha- she had hopes of like writing down her story, and um, just a lot of things that she wanted to wrap up, and she hoped that I could help her, but I knew that if I went back home, um, I knew that I couldn't, and because I knew when she passed that my father wouldn't help me. Explain that. I did. Uh, well, as much as I could, because I also, even though at that point we, w- I had come out, it was still, we still weren't really directly talking about it. And, and we still never really had a full on sit down conversation where we were like, I'm gay. Right. Here's what we need to do, you know? And so, um, so I told her that I couldn't. And, um, <laughs> and that was, that was an incredibly like, painful thing to do um and so later later that in the fall she she did pass away um, did, do you think she understood um we we had a couple conversations one time she actually came down to visit savannah um that summer and we were in a hotel like conference room and sitting across from each other across this like boardroom table and she she reached over and grabbed my hand and we were talking and um uh, she communicated that at, that she could not have been more proud and that she felt like everything happened the way that it should have um, and that she apologized for for what she had done that's great. yeah and and even um, when I went up to see her when she when she was passing away she uh, she communicated several times like please don't remember me for that day and don't remember me for for that um, so yeah I mean I think that Everything happened as it did. So you had closure with her. Yeah. What happened with your stepdad? Um, I, I tried to, I tried to see what we could be after that, um, and I did have a full on like I'm gay conversation with him after, uh, and I told him I I had a lot of problems with what they had done. I felt like my entire life they had mistreated me. Um, and we, it, there was, it seemed like there was hope for a few weeks, um, but then it just fizzled out and I, I haven't talked to him probably in three years. I, I do the work that I do and I'm passionate about all of this and I hope that this project connects with people because, um, you know, I'm sure there are youth there today who are being just as mistreated, so. And terrorized. Yeah. Do you have any regrets, any unresolved issues any any more to say about that experience or what where you are now as a result of that um i think that it's i think i i don't think i think that i do have i don't i don't think i could have handled the situation in any other way than i did but at the same time i still feel regret about a lot of things i um i i do i regret that I couldn't have been there for my mom when she was passing. Um, but at the same time, 
uh, I know that there was nothing else I could do. So this is from 1975. Okay. And uh, I was finishing up my grad school one-year master's program at Tufts in international relations. I had left behind my athletic career, which is how I hid my gayness from the world and myself. Since there were no athletes who were known to be gay, as long as I kept playing sports, in my mind at least, I would continue to be straight. Then I get to my first job in Washington, D.C. with the U.S. Treasury Department. I was miscast and I was really unhappy. Yeah. I also was hanging around with all my uh, straight grad school friends and college friends who lived in the D.C. area or who visited. And that was nice, but when secretly you, you are attracted to men and really want to have some interaction of that sort, which I didn't even know yet, I was unfulfilled and really unhappy. Uh, in that atmosphere, I would walk to the Treasury Department along Pennsylvania Avenue next to the White House every day to work. And on a given morning in December 1975, actually December 11th, Thursday, uh, I stopped at the newsstand outside the, the White House and I see a Washington uh, Star newspaper article and the series headline was four-part series on homosexuality and sports. And that, that got my attention yeah. because, again, I'm an athlete and there is no homosexuality in sports, but now there may be. Yeah. And the subheading was, you know, David Cope, who is a NFL uh, running back, Dave Cope, out in the open. And I'm like, what? Dave Cope was a, a Washington Redskin NFL running back star. He'd, act, he'd uh, you know, performed for nine years, had retired, and now he's coming out? Oh my God, there's a jock who's gay? What does that mean for me? So was he well known to you before? No, I, I didn't know him because he, I had only moved to D.C. just then and he'd been retired two or three years. Okay. And he was a, a pretty solid running back, but he wasn't a star. Okay. But it didn't matter. Yeah. The fact that somebody in that role at that time would acknowledge publicly when, remember, this is an era when you didn't admit you were gay no matter what career you were in, much less sports. It rocked my world. I bought the paper. I hid it under my jacket. I went into my office at the U.S. Treasury and locked the door. I started reading it. My heart was racing. Um, when I finished, I'm like, oh, my God, maybe he can help me. Maybe he can help me figure out if I'm gay or what, what do I do about it if I'm gay. And so I took out my pen back in those days. We didn't have computers. Uh, on a yellow legal pad, and I wrote him a letter. And I basically said, oh, my God, you know, congratulations, good luck. It sounds like you've got a tough road ahead of you. I, I wish you the best in, in, in dealing with all that. Uh, I'm an athlete. I think I might be gay too, but I, I really don't know, and, and I don't know how to figure that out. If you could ever, once you get past all these issues you're dealing with, have time and be willing to write me back and give me some advice on what to do and where to go, I would be really appreciative. And I was almost not going to put my return address on it because of the witch hunts that had happened in the government in rooting out civil service of homosexuals within the decade before that. But then how's he going to get in touch with me? So I put my return information on the letter. I mailed it. I probably forgot about it. I don't think I really expected a reply, although I was hopeful. And then a few weeks later, I'm on a winter Saturday afternoon in my one-bedroom Georgetown apartment napping, and the phone rings. And I pick it up. Hello? Hello. Is Mike Balaban there? Uh, this is he. Uh, this is Dave Cope. Oh, my God. 
he called me. How did he find my number? Well, he looked up my number in the white pages, the directory that was used at the time, and called me and basically said, you know, I'm in town. Uh, if you're available tonight, I'd like to invite you out for a drink. Am I available? Oh, my God. So we got together in my neighborhood for a drink. Nothing sexual happened between us. I, I really wasn't attracted to him, oddly enough. I was very specific in my, in my interest back then, and I don't know that he was attracted to me. We, but that wasn't the purpose. He basically gave me just practical advice. He was, there was no magic elixir. He didn't become my best friend. I never went to dinner with him by design. But we would see each other regularly in the discos and bars that he told me to frequent, and he would become a bar buddy. What kind of advice did he give you that first night? He just told me that, you know, you could be openly gay and masculine and be happy. Yeah. And that was what I needed more than any secret success because until that moment, I didn't think I could be. Where were you at this point in your, your journey coming of age as a gay man? I had had sex with one man who I d didn't know and didn't mean anything to me and was indeterminate as to whether that meant that I would like to have more. Okay. I had not been willing to acknowledge that, in fact, I would end up gay or be primarily attracted to men because I didn't think there was a life for me. Right. I thought I'd be miserable. So this was the moment where I first saw a possible path that I could be open, that I could be for lack of a less politically correct way of saying this, you know, unaffected, not flamboyant, masculine, uh, and find others like me. Even today, there is a lot of homophobia in sports yeah. because, and again, a short version of it, we separate athletes into boys and girls at elementary school and immediately start demonizing the other. If you're a boy, there's nothing worse than being described in sports like you play like a girl or you can't do enough push-ups. What are you, a wuss? Are you a pussy? Are you, are you a woman? Are you a faggot? Or in, in um, women's sports, there's nothing worse than being considered too manly. Mm -hmm. So we set these oppositions up and it becomes sexist and homophobic and there's no way worse of denigrating your opponent or potential opponent, even your own teammate when you're competing for a role on the team, then calling them that name. Right. So, yes, of course it was homophobic. But it wasn't even like people were thinking about the meaning of the term when they use it. They would just use pejorative terms like faggot or homo or that's so gay or whatever to put you down yeah. without even thinking of the sexual component of it. Okay, got it. Did Dave continue to be an instrumental part of your, your life moving a forward? Again... Anecdotally, intermittently, it, 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 he wasn't someone that I called up and said, let's have dinner, right. or what do I do? But just being the propellant that got me out of my space and into the bars, and I, you know, I left D.C. within several months uh, and moved to New York and had trouble even there for a couple of years meeting gay friends. So it wasn't quick and easy for me, but in terms of my identity and my acknowledgement of it, I also... I'm very unusual among gay men. I was comfortable telling people I was gay. I was uncomfortable in the gay world okay. because of this need for a normal, unaffected, masculine presence and not knowing how and where to find it and not knowing how to risk being rejected. Yeah. You know. So for me, uh, Dave Cope was the accelerant, okay. was the catalyst. And yes, he did remain part of my life intermittently off and on and just as a post facto i mean just the fact that there was a masculine athlete who publicly stated he was he was homosexual and was not apologetic about it it rocked my world and made me 
think, well, I'm an athlete. That means I can be gay. Maybe it means I can't avoid being gay, which I'd been avoiding to that, in denying to that moment. So sure, he, he was a role model. Um, just in the fact that he was doing something I didn't think was possible. Has he ever communicated to you like what sparked his uh, bravery to come out? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I probably have asked him, and I can't remember. I, I don't think he felt he had any choice. I just don't think he could live the lie. Okay. I see. I, I did ask him, why did you respond to my letter? Because he received hundreds of similar you know, outreaches from LGTB closeted youth around the country. Yeah. And he said, I, I couldn't not respond. Your letter was eloquent and compassionate and articulate and I did, you know, I was just, I had to call you up. So when were you finally able to come out to your friends and family? Well, this all happened in the period of about a year to 15 months. In early 75, I had sex with the guy I met through the one ad uh -huh. in Boston. I moved to D.C. in early September for my first job, read the article, the interview, the coming out of Dave Cope in December, was put in touch with him within a few weeks, and then in bicentennial weekend in D.C. in July of that year, 76, while fraternity brothers were visiting me, I came out to several of them, and while my mother was visiting me, I came out to her. So that really began my odyssey of telling everybody. When they came, my mom came down to D.C. Um, uh, and I told her it was because at that point, if she had rejected me, I would have been able to deal with it. Right. I mean, I've known a lot of uh, gay guys who do wait until after college right. for that reason because right. it's it can be. I've had time. youngsters, and that's a, such a colloquial term. I've had Gen Zers, you know. I think it was a 15 or 16 year old on my Instagram page and I have to be very careful because of giving advice or talking to people under 18. I don't want to yeah. appear to be, you know, or influencing them unduly as someone that yeah. is an, as an adult gay male. But I had somebody write me and say something along the lines of, you know, you give me hope as a young youth in the conservative South wow. in an unaccepting environment like, like yours was, wow. that there's hope for me out there. I made sure I wrote back only publicly and I gave supportive remarks, but it's good to know that, that giving our example to young people can maybe help them feel like it does get better. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can view the photos that Caleb and I discussed in today's broadcast. Just go to bammer.co episode four. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co.